Hello, everyone. Welcome to SciSection Radio. Today, I am Renu, your journalist, and you can find SciSection Radio at CFMU 93.3 FM. Today, I am joined by Dr. Chris Ferry. He is a theoretical physicist at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he's also the author of a popular children's book series called Baby University, where he condenses complicated scientific topics into short sentences and simple illustrations. Hello, Dr. Ferry. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, so to start off, I have to ask you about quantum physics for baby. Uh, <laughs> and um, can you tell me how the journey of developing the idea to getting to the point where you wanted to publish it went about? Yeah, it was, it was a bit spontaneous. I mean, it's, it's hard to remember. And when we think back <laughs> on history, we always uh, simplify things and exaggerate things. But it there was a process to it. It wasn't well planned. It was more, uh, here's an idea and then sit on it for a while and then go back to it and say, Hey, what about that idea I thought of? Um, and then you notice things like, for example, I thought maybe I'll write a book, but then I thought, well, you know, I have a job. I don't need another job and it's hard to get books published. And then I noticed the self publishing options. And so I thought, Oh, what about that idea I had? Maybe I can self publish it. And then, I, and then I started kind of putting it together. And once I started putting it together, then I thought, yeah, this could probably work. So I initially self-published it and it was self-published for quite a while, maybe three years or more. Um, and it was available uh, on Amazon and it was print on demand. So, you know, it's very easy for like authors to do this because there's no upfront cost. So if you just want to test just try it out. You can just mm -hmm. do that and you don't have to pay anything up front. And when somebody buys the book, it gets printed and sent to them. And, and that's all organized by um, these print on demand services. So I just kind of went about my job as an academic and not really paying much attention. And, um, uh, and I was told by some publishers that contacted me, they're like some of the most popular mm -hmm. self-published books. Um, at least, um, at least ones that are printed. I mean, there's uh, romance novels that are apparently very popular <laughs> eBooks, but um, yeah. And so, and so they wanted to get into this space of like nonfiction for children. And, and it's quite rare that a publisher will take a self-published book and then turn it into a, um, like republish it. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, these ones were doing well enough that they decided to do it. And it was a kind of a novel enough idea. And then they are now available in this uh, kind of nice board book format with, uh, you know, well-designed cover and everything. Yeah. So it was kind of a, you know, a, a random route. I mean, uh -huh. there was uh, some intention involved, but, um, but yeah, it was mostly, mostly like happenstance and, and, uh, you know, putting things out there. And now it's grown to a series of over 30 books. How many is it? Yeah, so Sourcebooks, my publisher, uh, by the end of the year, will publish 50 of my books. Wow. Um, <laughs> they're not all like something for babies. They're not all in the Baby University series. Oh. So I also write um, picture books. Um, um, so there's, there's some picture books now. But yeah, and I think in the Baby University series, maybe something like 30 is the right number. That's so cool. So... 
Do you think that exposing children, especially babies, to these physics topics before they're exposed to um, social stereotypes, do you think that'll really encourage women and especially minorities come into STEM? I hope so. Uh, it's a challenge in that, especially in where the books are published, like in in the U.S., that the difference between um, you know different minority groups kind of aligns with economic differences as well mm -hmm. and books aren't aren't cheap right so it's a, it's a challenge to get books into the hands that you want them to be right. in so i certainly think that i mean i hope that there be lots of new children that are interested in science and especially you know higher level science than would have been in the past because mostly what i think the books are doing is alleviating this anxiety and fear that parents have right. and if that's done then the children don't kind of absorb and adopt the fears of their parents so i think for girls it's especially useful because i see in the schoolyard the way people talk about young children like like kindergartners and mm -hmm. already already this kind of stereotype of girls aren't good at math or girls aren't good at science is is cropping up and you know as soon as somebody gets one question on one test wrong right. the response is oh well maybe you're not a math person um maybe you can focus on this other like traditionally stereotypical thing that that women do so i'm hoping that we can we can move away from that but i don't know if you know the the readers of these books, you know, I don't know the demographics of them, but right. my suspicion is that because they're they're printed in like high quality books and and the price point that the that the publisher has chosen is a bit on the on the higher end, that the majority of the people that own a, co a copy of the book are will be people you know with disposable income. So mm -hmm. that that's that's a big challenge, um, you know. But we get them in schools and in, 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 in libraries. So, so hopefully we can, we can solve some of these issues. So you said that a lot of people, after one wrong answer, feel like they're not a math person. When did you start to realize you were a math person? I can remember distinctly, actually. It was in grade one. And we would play this game where you would compete with one of your classmates to answer a flashcard math question as fast as possible. And if you answered it, then you would move on. You would, you would be standing up, they would be sitting in their desk and you would move on to the next person. And you would be asked a new question. And if you got it wrong, then you had to sit in their desk and they got to move on. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, when it was my turn, I would just go around and around the room um, and be able to answer these questions faster than um, the other students. And, it wasn't so much that, you know, maybe it was just happenstance that, that I happened to be uh, quicker at answering these, these questions. And, you know, that could have been a f due to many factors, you know, could have been that I, I happened to practice those ones or just, um, just confidence or, or, or it could have been anything. But what happened after that was the positive feedback, right? So the teacher like identified me as someone who might excel at math. And so then they focused their attention on me. Right? right. And in math, especially, I, I don't think that anyone is incapable of doing it. 
I don't think anyone's incapable of doing math at the university level. But what happens as they go through school is that they get behind. And once you get behind, there's no, there's absolutely no way to catch up. There's no formal path for students to catch up. And they just feel like that this isn't for them. They're not good at it. It's not a talent they have because the classroom is being taught one thing, but they're at a slightly lower level. Now, if they were just taught at their own level, then, then they would be fine as well. So I, I kind of just got lucky in that I never fell behind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I was in a, in a classroom with some of the students that I ended up going to university with, I would be ignored and the, the class would be taught towards a higher level. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have studied math at, in university. So there's a, there's a lot, it's, it's unfortunately a lot of like just sheer luck that goes into the situation that you end up in. But I, I, th- I think there's a way ar- around that. Um, it's difficult because you mm-hmm. have to focus attention and, and on each individual student. So I think that's why you know, ultimately the responsibility of education, especially of young children, rests in the hands of the parents. I mean, we, right. we can't, you know, we can't assume that a teacher with a classroom of 30 students is going mm-hmm. to be able to give all the students the attention that they need. I also think um, math isn't taught as excitingly as it should be. And a lot of people just have the misconception that university level math is just longer, long divisions. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that wouldn't be exciting at all. No, Um, no, I think math is uh, at its core, just uh, puzzles and games. And yeah, those those, those can be fun. I mean, they're embedded in the ga- any game that you play. Math is embedded in, in all kind of aspects of life. So I think that it's, it's definitely challenging. Actually, math has this kind of, the problem, I think, is that it's too easy to test, right? So, because mm-hmm. in it's other right subjects, like, yeah, in other subjects like history, you, you just tell the students some factual information and that that's immediately relatable to their to their own life because it involves people and and you know the kids are excited and so you think that that you've done a good job whereas math it's just so easy to say ah i'll find out if you're good at it i'll just give you a test right so practice all of the questions that might be on the test and then give them the test and there's i see a, a lot around the world um initiatives to try to change the way math is taught uh, I know in Ontario when I was there, they had moved to this what they called discovery math, where it was kind of this kind of flipped learning model where the, it was student led, and they found that the kids didn't do better on the tests with this new method. Well, of course not, because you haven't changed the way you did the test, and before you just had them practice writing tests. Of course, they're going to be good at tests. Um, so it's it it is it is a challenge to to get to get right, and I, I think the the problem is just comes back down to it's it's just so easy to give someone a math test and oh, man when you have all of these other things to do you end up like doing the easiest one so math gets kind of the short end of the stick there so um since you're currently lecturing um do you have any advice for how students can make the most of their online classes um i don't know i think yeah i think so i don't know if it's good advice but from a, from a teacher's perspective, maybe this is unique to like a university, and and this I think probably is like works generally for 
most online meetings and collaborations. I find that when you're doing this online, people have a tendency to just put their video and audio on mute and go to another window and get distracted. Um, and so some people even joke that like online classes and meetings are good to get them to focus on something else they want to do. <laughs> so if there's a meeting going on, they can't actually leave the room so they can sit and focus on the work that they want to do. And the meeting is just mm -hmm. keeping them there. Well, if that's the case, then you're not actually participating in the class or the meeting. And so as a lecturer, I'm just talking to my a screen. Like, I don't even know if the people on the other end are listening. And so they're not giving me feedback. And if there's no participation, then then there's very little that is really coming out of this. So I, for students, I would say, you know, participate in, in the lectures. And even if that's just, you know, put, put your video on so that the teacher can see that you're paying attention and nodding your head and, and certainly, certainly give feedback. It can be challenging because, you know, as a teacher, you might say, say during the first 10 minutes, you might say, okay, minute one, okay, does anyone have any questions? And then silence. Minute two, does anyone have any questions? Silence. And you, at some point you think, well, this is pointless to even ask if there's any questions. And so you stop asking if there's any questions. And then when someone finally has a question, they're like, am I allowed to interrupt? Or what? he's not asking me if, if, I, if I have questions anymore. So, you know, mm -hmm. it, it could be worthwhile to just mentally reset, go back to the beginning and say, okay, we're going to do this with the same enthusiasm that we started with and, and really participate. Right. So I won't make you choose between your books, but what's perhaps your favorite medium to write in? You write books, blogs, you are pretty active on Twitter. Yeah, I like, I like, I like blogging. I like, I, I don't know what it is about it, but I like, um, I like writing things that are longer than a tweet but don't require the commitment of a 40,000 page book. Um, so I think blogging kind of hits that. And, you know, this kind of five minute read mark, I, I feel mm -hmm. like that's the thing that I enjoy. I mean, it's, quite, it's a little bit selfish. Like I, I, I'm usually writing for myself. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's my future self, or maybe it's just to crystallize the ideas I have. And I find it very helpful to write these down and put them in public because it it kind of gives you it it forces you to to clarify exactly what it is that that you mean. And so you know I write some books and maybe some blog posts that are pretty esoteric. And you know you can these these all the all of these platforms give you like the ability to look at the stats of your things. And you know some of the ones that I enjoyed writing the most are the ones that have like one view, which is me, <laughs> um, which is fine because, uh, yeah, you, at least you know that when you write for yourself that there's one person that, that will enjoy it. And what about writing journal articles? Writing journal articles? Uh, I'm a bit over that, to be honest. Um, I, I prefer giving uh, academic seminars about my research than I do writing academic journals. So there's a lot of constraints that come along with writing for, for journals. And 
I mean, people have this kind of uh, platonic ideal conception of what the what academic publication means, and it involves like you know writing writing down you know your arguments and then them being like criticized and peer reviewed and and there's some sort of uh, feedback process so that what finally gets published is like you know this uh, this thing that can go in the epitome of science and that's not how it works at all in practice it's it's messy and there's all sorts of competing like financial interests and mm-hmm. and just competing social interests and the way that it works in practice is is more of a a game of mates as they say in australia um so who knows who and it, it's really kind of sad to be honest so i i don't like those aspects of it uh i think that i will continue to write academic journals or journal articles but i won't you know there in in my field in particular there's a new trend where you post what you you post your your article online it's mm-hmm. not peer reviewed it's not published but people can read it and a lot of the you know the best work in the field is recognized and kind of vetted before it ever gets sent to reviewers to peer review and then it never actually gets published and it just it's just a you know another thing on the internet but it's cited thousands of times and it's become part of the you know scientific literature uh even though it hasn't been formally peer reviewed and that that kind of irks people but we have to remember that peer review often involves just one other person reading it probably you know 5 minutes before the deadline when they're supposed to submit the review mm-hmm. and didn't really give it much thought to whereas if you have something posted on the internet and you know that thousands of people have read it and have looked at it and used it in their further research and that that's a better vetting process in my mind than than the traditional academic model in theoretical physics are physicists happy in the abstract world of math or do they try to explain it in words to create a picture in our heads yeah at some point you you're working with ideas and concepts that have not been translated so when when you first initially start looking at say symbols in mathematics mm-hmm. they're used to shorten like compress things so in a remember like word problems from school it's like you uh you know you put a ladder against a wall and uh what angle do you need to put it at so that yada 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 something like that and then the first thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to like create a variable let you know let x be the distance of the ladder from the wall right something like that mm-hmm. so instead of writing out that full sentence every time you replace it with this variable x and it's not that for high higher level mathematics you have all of these symbols and concepts which are just compressions of of things you can say in in english for example but just take a lot longer to say they're actually new concepts that have not been phrased in the language in in any sort of spoken language so you you're almost forced to to use these and only these and it's 
doing that translation is, is sometimes difficult. I mean, so you have like these concepts and symbols and this is what mathematics is and they have their own set of rules for how they go together and you, you know how to use those rules, like you know how to use language, but there's no, there's no translation to an, any spoken language. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope you have a good day. All right. Thank you, Renu. Bye. Bye.